Bhutang Dhammang Sanghang Namasam. A few weeks ago, before picking up the theme for reflection, I spoke briefly about how I saw what I was offering in these Dhamma talks and how some teachers speak with consistent informed references to the the scriptures and and that that wasn't what I was aiming at offering, rather it was more hopefully a a sense of a shared uh, contemplation and uh, that it may be useful for people to be aware of that. This is not a lecture on Buddhism. This evening, just before we pick up the theme for reflection, I thought to mention that the Buddha did have also things to say about how people listen to Dhamma teachings. It can take some effort to prepare ourselves to be in a suitable listening mode. There's two occasions where the Buddha spoke about this in the Discourse on Profound Auspiciousness or the Mahamangala Sutta. And these two references, one is called Dhammasavana and the other one is called Dhammasakacha. And these are distinctly different modes for attending to or listening to to Dhamma. And the first one, Dhammasavana, is, well, the the sentence actually says, Kale in a Dhammasavana, which means timely listening to Dhamma teachings is uh, auspicious. And, and what's meant by that is not just if we have the good fortune to hear the right teachings at the right time and that the teachings happen to pertain to where we're at. Also, I would suggest it refers to how we can prepare ourselves for listening to, to Dhamma talks. I don't know how it is for you. I, I imagine it's not that different. That, though in my own mind, the way I was educated, it's very easy when somebody is talking on a particular topic to be having this agreeing and disagreeing conversation going on in my mind. And what does he mean by that? And Oh, I'm not sure about this. And well, he could talk some more about that. And well, he's completely wrong about this. And this, this kind of inner critique of what's being said, can keep the mind very busy and keep our attention up in our heads. Intellectually, are we agreeing or disagreeing with what's being said? And that can get in the way of listening. Because these talks, Dhamma talks, are not, as I was saying, these are not lectures on Buddhism aimed at transferring information. For instance, a lecture on fire prevention we had our our regular lecture the other day from the fire officer in the community and teaching us this is what you do in this situation and this is what you do in that situation and you should know you use a CO2 cylinder for this and you don't hold it like that, you hold it like this and, and then you use a powder on it like that and, and so on. That's a lecture. There's a certain amount of information that we are quite rightly expected to absorb. And, or there are Spiritual lectures, which are instruction on how you should be. You should be like this, you should be like that. 
you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And this mode of teaching where, as I was saying, it's a, a, an invitation to participate in a consideration or a contemplation, it requires that we're alert to we're alert to how we feel about what's being said, but we're not being pulled into critiquing it. So yes, it's to some degree putting aside our compulsive critical faculties, not blindly denying our critical faculties and allowing ourselves to be indoctrinated. No, definitely not. However, that's one extreme. On the other extreme, it's being just totally lost in critiquing all the time, somewhere in between those two, of indulging and denying, uh, hopefully we'll find a mode of listening whereby we can receive what's being said, however we're also feeling how it affects us. So there's a quietness upstairs. The head is not full of conversation and noises. We're in our hearts, we're in our bodies, we're feeling what's being said. And So yes, after the talk, then hopefully there'll be some memory of what's being offered and, and the opportunity to consider it against your own experience. And however, there's a receptivity that means that you're engaged in the consideration. So, Tamasavana is timely and I would say skillfully listening to Dhamma. And then the second mode of listening to Dhamma the Buddha talked about is Tamasakacha, which is, refers to the shared inquiry. It's not just passively listening to what's being said. So that's just a little bit on, on modes of listening to Dhamma. Now to turn to the theme of this evening's contemplation. Last week it was the full moon occasion for this month where we, uh, together as a monastic community here, made a commitment to our three-month period of what's traditionally known as the Rains Retreat. It doesn't happen to be particularly rainy at this time of year uh, in the United Kingdom. However, in Thailand and Burma and Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, this is the rainy season and, and we are obliged by our rules to commit to staying relatively put in one place for three months. And what I wanted to mention about that ceremony tonight was the way we began this three-month period of formally asking for forgiveness from each other. And the, we were aware that we are going to be together for three months and it's inevitable that there's going to be some some degree of disharmony. It's inevitable, human beings living together. And so, what is a skillful way of entering into a retreat together? Well, the first thing we do is to just clear the slate of any past resentments and disappointments and unfinished business that may be lurking around. And so, asking for forgiveness is a formal ceremony where it begins with the, the rest of the community asking for forgiveness from the teacher, and then I offer my forgiveness, and then likewise I ask for forgiveness from the community, and they offer their forgiveness to me. And this beautiful formal gesture begins, and also three months later ends this rains retreat period. And 
And the reason I wanted to raise it here was because it seems to me a, a beautiful and skillful means of learning how to cooperate together. This so little cooperation and concord these days in this world that we live in. So much education, so much affluence, so many opportunities for wonderful things to happen, and yet we I'm sure we all agree it's a sad and sorry situation that we find ourselves in generally. So what can we do about it? Well, one of the things we can do about it is really study our own heart and mind, attend to the Buddha's teachings, and what is it that conduces to concord? And one of the things that conduces to concord is this learning how to forgive, learning how to offer forgiveness. And now, the ritual itself doesn't do the job. It provides an opportunity for reflecting on whether or not we're harboring resentment. And, and then, hopefully, coming to realize that whatever painful memories we might have of the past, whether we invest resentment in those memories or not, is absolutely our choice. Well, I say absolutely, potentially. It may not be easy you know, we, if we've been harboring hurt feelings for a for a good while, or we were we felt seriously hurt. It may take some time, and certainly take some effort, to realise that there is the potential for choosing to not invest ill will in that painful memory. Probably you can't stop the memory; the memory can remain. However, whether we invest ill will in that memory or not, potentially that's a choice we have. And so, such rituals as this is formally asking for forgiveness and apologizing is a beautiful and skillful way of beginning the retreat. On this occasion, last week, I was remembering the very first occasion where I was participating in this tradition, and it was when I was living with Venerable Ajahn Tate in, in Shi Chiang Mai, just north of Nongkai, a, a small monastery, Wat Hingmak Pang, on the bank of the the uh, Mekong River in the northeast of Thailand. and It was my first range retreat and we went through this ceremony together and not only was it within the community uh, of monks and officers living together, also we travelled around the surrounding area and visited other monasteries. I remember, well I can actually only remember one monk that we visited, it was Lumpur Kao, who was uh, very uh, old by that stage, a venerable contemporary of, of Ajahn Tate and it wasn't what was happening just a few kilometres away or in fact just a few metres away on the other side of the Mekong River. Of course 1975 that was, was the year that the Patit Lao and for the Laotian people and then just south of there for the Cambodian people, that was when Phnom Penh fell to the Khmer Rouge and, and then further across to the east of when the Viet Cong arrived in Saigon and South Vietnam, that was 1975, and the war, the horror, the hell that was happening uh, was so tragic. You know, why are human beings doing this? Why do human beings behave like this? Surely, generally speaking, most of us prefer concord over conflict. Generally speaking, most of us prefer cooperation over contentiousness. Though what do we do if, we're, if this is the case? Why have we got so much um, conflict and, and contentiousness, so much disharmony? And 
I seem to remember reading somewhere or hearing some years ago talking about the evolution of species and, and how uh, it wasn't that the species that survived were not necessarily the, the most powerful individually speaking. The species that survived were the ones that learned how to cooperate. If we can learn to cooperate, it's to our advantage on all levels. Apparently there was an occasion when Ajahn Chah was asked what is the greatest challenge in dealing with your disciples and your students and and he replied their attachment to views and opinions. Monks don't necessarily have the same opportunities for arguing over things that that householders might argue over, like which is the the best restaurant to go to or the best rock festival to attend. Although monks don't have such things to argue about, they do certainly at times argue about views and opinions, including views and opinions on Dhamma Vinaya. If you read the Buddhist scriptures, there are plenty of occasions where monks fell out big time and even fell out with the Buddha himself and telling the Buddha to get lost. Incredible foolishness. Human beings, somehow we allow ourselves to get lost in. So what's really going on there? On the subject of views, it's worth reminding ourselves how the Buddha spoke about the preeminence of right view. And on one occasion he, he talked about how just as the dawn is the harbinger of the new day, that right view, sammaditi, precedes all the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path. Having a right view, what is right view? I had a conversation with Lumpo Tiradhamma about this the other day, because he's somebody who studies the scriptures a lot and writes a lot, and we were talking about what, what's actually meant by right view and Samaditi and Samasankapa is the second factor of the Eightfold Path, which is often translated as right thought. I don't personally think it's a great translation. And so we were discussing this topic and how another way of understanding right view is not just right understanding, like you know, right information. It's really talking about beliefs, like deeply held beliefs, and the, the Buddha held up like the the confidence that one has in the Four Noble Truths, the validity of the Four Noble Truths, the confidence that one has in, in the law of karma and the law of rebirth, that these views, if we internalize them, serve us well. And, and then they have an effect. The, the beliefs, the views that we, we assimilate affect the next stage, what we call samasankapa, and which Ajahn Tiridhamma was referring to as, as right aspiration. And personally, I like the, the translation of right activation, which is a, a slightly curious term, though it means that people are going to have to think about it. What does that actually mean there? And then it goes on, of course, to the other factors of, of right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so on. And at the very beginning, there's right view. And the views that we hold 
and how we hold them has a very profound effect on our being. How we live our lives, how we speak, how we act. And particularly in today's world where there's so much about identity politics, investigating the views that we hold and how we hold them is really important. Our identity is very much informed by the beliefs, by the views, by the understanding, our core understanding. What are the deep beliefs we have about what's important in life, what matters, what truly matters. So giving it time to reflect on this, giving ourselves time to reflect on the views that we have and how we hold them, clinging blindly, intensely, to fixed views, that doesn't necessarily amount to right view. We can be clinging to views in a way whereby we, we become a source of contention. There's holding mindfully and skillfully, and there's clinging desperately. Clinging desperately, that's the characteristic of fundamentalism. And we know the consequences of that. Related to this matter, I, I, um, I remember some years ago when I was visiting home in New Zealand and I met and enjoyed speaking with a Christian monk who had been in Vietnam during the, the war years. and He shared with me this observation of how when the Vietnamese soldiers would arrive at the hospital where he was working and uh, seriously wounded and and claiming to be Christians. And, and then he said that in the cases where these young men were about to die, he said often they reverted to being Buddhists again, the religion that they were brought up with. In other words, the core beliefs, the core values that they had, had been instilled in them when they were young. And I'm not quite sure why he was telling me this, whether he was suggesting that when it's my time to die that I'm going to revert to, to calling on Jesus or not, or whether he was saying something else, I'm not quite sure. It did happen on that occasion, though some of you might have heard me mention this before, where, whereby just around that time I, I happened to be out hiking along the coast of the North Island of New Zealand, a remote part of the coast, with a, with a friend who went away for a few days of of quiet and it was very hot and it was an open stretch of empty beach and so we thought we'll just go swimming and I wasn't smart enough to survey the ocean before I went in for a swim and and uh, uh, unfortunately I, I got caught in a drip current and it was very very powerful if I'd been smart I would have looked and seen how the waves were not breaking in that particular area which suggests there there's, a, there's it's dangerous and so once I got caught in this rip current and was being pulled out to sea it was so powerful I'd never experienced anything like it before I used to be quite a strong swimmer when I was young and used to spending a lot of time in the ocean and it just didn't occur to me that I, I couldn't handle it and definitely I couldn't handle this and it was very strong and Initially, I thought I would raise my arm because that's what you're supposed to do if you're in danger. And 
let this guy know I was in danger. However, I thought he might then come in and try and save me. So, so I didn't do that, and I just had visions of being dragged out into the towards Australia and being eaten by sharks and images going on through my going through my mind of my parents being upset, Ajahn Sumaita being angry at me and for my foolishness. And however, on that occasion, I, it coincided with my having just learnt this deep breathing technique which requires deep relaxation and surrender and and I found myself just rolling over my back and floating giving up the struggle of trying to go against the current and trying to save myself of course there was an impulse to try and save myself there was another impulse which was saying surrender and that's what happened I just rolled over my back and breathing this breathing technique, then surrendering and relaxing. And and then what came to my mind was just, let the Buddha take over, or may the Buddha take over, and just keep breathing and relaxing. And then this other force came in, you've got to fight and save yourself, so trying to do that, and then inhibit the breathing, and then starting to sink, and getting caught in the, the current again, and then surrendering again, and breathing again, and relaxing. Thankfully what happened was I was taken along the coast of Weiwei, and, and uh, at some stage I thought, well, I'll just try riding one of these waves into the shore again and see what happens. And, and fortunately, I was out of the, the rip current by that stage, and I did make my way ashore. And I was, I was delighted. I, what happened, this experience of surrendering control in the face of being so deeply threatened was an affirmation for me an affirmation of my commitment to these teachings, the teachings of the Buddha. Instead of trying to struggle to save myself, uh, what happened was this surrendering and surrendering the struggle and trusting, trusting. So what goes into configuring our sense of identity, our individual sense of identity has a very big effect on whether we're likely to be contributing to concord or conflict in the world, I would suggest. And, and it's worth considering where are we at and with our own sense of I, with our own sense of self. The sense of self that we, we tend to feel is so certain, is it warranted? The sense of self that I live as now is this 70-something-year-old man. Is that the same sense of self that I was when I first came here? I think, I think I was about 39 when I first came to this monastery. And, and I think I was 29 when I arrived in Britain. And it's the same sense of self. And what about going way back, like when I was nine or, or when I was two? Is there, was there a sense of self? Is it the same sense of self? Well, of course there wasn't. The so-called sense of self is not what it looks like at all. It's not a solid, substantial thing. It's a dynamic process that keeps changing. And if we're not careful, we try and turn it into a solid, substantial thing. We seek security. We seek security by clinging fast to the sense of I, the sense of self. And from the Buddhist perspective, that's not wise, that's one of the causes of conflict and 
and disharmony in our world, inwardly and outwardly, clinging to something that's inherently unstable. This individual sense of identity exists, sort of. It's not like the Buddha never spoke about there being a sense of self. Atasmapaniticha, and that, that same discourse I was talking about before, the discourse on great auspiciousness, and the second stanza, there's a line that says, Atasmapaniticha, oneself rightly aligned, or oneself rightly directed. This conventional sense of self, this conventional sense of I, although he also, as we all know, talked a lot about selflessness, about anatta, he wasn't holding up the conventional sense of self, the conventional sense of I, as the source of security. However, he also wasn't dismissing it. We need to pay attention to it. That was the talk of a few weeks ago where I spoke about are we suffering from a virtue deficiency that, that these traditional virtues that are encouraged in the spiritual teachings are, are ways of informing, educating, strengthening, giving stability to this conventional sense of I, the conventional sense of self. And without it, then, we risk the opposite of, of being weak, of being unstable, of being insecure and And this conventional sense of individual identity is not, it's not just a single process. It seems to, if you look into it, it seems to be, from what I've read and observed, it seems to be a multidimensional phenomenon. There are, there are surface dimensions to it, like I'm a 70-something-year-old male, dual citizen, British and very pleased to be British, but also a Kiwi. And when I hear the haka by the All Blacks before the rugby game, I'm deeply moved. And there's a part of me that's still a Kiwi. There's definitely part of me that's British. These aspects of my identity, these change. I wasn't always 70, I wasn't always British. They are part of who I experience myself to be. The surface aspects the surface aspects, and then there are more core aspects. And that's what the spiritual teachings aim to address, the core aspects of who we see ourselves to be, the core aspects of what we deeply believe truly matters. And, and if the teachings we receive and, and what we've assimilated is not coherent, is not balanced, then what exists on the core level of identity is is chaotic and not providing even a relative degree of security. And so then what happens? If the self is not rightly aligned, is not rightly directed, then what happens is that people attempt to find security on the surface levels. And therein you find the crisis of people trying to find security by going on about their nationality. We're conditioned by these reactions. And they're not ultimately important. And yet if we don't have core aspects of our identity rightly aligned, rightly informed, then we attach to the surface levels of our identity, like our nationality and our age. And how dare you call me old? <laughs> I always get puzzled by people who make a problem out of old age. I mean, it's so fortunate being older. 
I, I tell people, you know, somebody talks, was talking recently about being 40, says, oh, you wait till you're 60, it gets so much better. And, and even 70. So I, I, I can't wait to be 80. <laughs> well, of course, my knees and don't enjoy being older. Though there are other aspects of life that are great. It feels, feels much better. I feel really pleased to be older. So being offended because somebody insults my age or, or my nationality, I mean, is that really worth investing in? Really? Well, this is again what Atasamapanitija, oneself rightly aligned, rightly, rightly directed. Yeah. We're the core of who we feel ourselves to be, that we're looking in a direction that is stable, that is safe, that is, is we have faith is, is inherently secure. Yeah. So this has long been the, the role of religion. One of, the, one of the roles of religion is to protect protect people from taking their sense of self too seriously. If we take this conventional relative sense of I, sense of self too seriously, then it goes weird, it gets inflated. Self-importance takes over, and then distortions, and then trouble, and then conflict. Though that's something that we can do something about. All human beings have a sense of self. From about the age of seven onwards, there's this individuated sense of self. And part of our task is to train it, to educate it, so that it's rightly aligned, aligned with that which is, is true. And so for us, for instance, we bow down to the Buddha. And we make offerings to the Dhamma. We recite our gratitude and respect for the Sangha, going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. This is part of aligning ourselves with that which has the potential to give us security. So when we bow down to the Buddha, we have faith in that which is symbolized by the Buddha image. We have faith in that which is symbolized by the Dhamma. We have faith in that which is symbolized by the Sangha. The Buddha image itself is not the true Buddha. That symbolizes a true Buddha, which is selfless, just knowing awareness. The books in the Tripitaka cabinet in the back of the Dhamma, well, that's not the true Dhamma. The Dhamma is actuality. And the Sangha, and the Sangha, the true Sangha, is, is not the people that you happen to sit with, meditation with, and share your problems. The true Sangha is those beings who are irreversibly established on the path leading to complete liberation, complete freedom from greed, hatred, delusion, ignorance, and conceit. So having confidence in the Triple Gem is what Buddhists do in preparing ourselves, securing ourselves, supporting ourselves, so as we don't make the mistake of trying to find security in that which is inherently unstable. We're orienting our lives towards true principles. And I've been around long enough now to remember a time when the news broadcasters were on the radio or the TV and they would just read the news. Now the news broadcasters are on the radio and the TV and first they say, I am John Smith and this is today's news. And I'm always puzzled by that. Why, why do they have to tell us who they are? What's going on there? 
when the postman doesn't come to the door and say, hello, I'm John Smith, here's your mail today. So why did the newsreader have to tell us who they are? I'm still puzzled by that. Or people taking selfies, what's that all about? I mean, it was only recently that that happened, before it used to be seen as, as embarrassing for people to be focusing on themselves, because it is embarrassing for people to be focusing on themselves. The self is not a reliable source of security. However, over the last century in particular, as the influence of even conventional religion has waned, so the intoxication with clinging to the conventional sense of self has increased. So we need to really pay close attention to that. Look, what is really going on there when we catch ourselves self-promoting and self-referencing? It's not because we're bad. People don't take selfies and, and promote themselves because they're bad. However, I do think it's worth looking into whether they're rightly aligned or rightly informed. So going for refuge, going for refuge to the Buddha, going for refuge to the Dhamma, going for refuge to the Sangha, I begin and end the day as reaffirming. In the morning, in Pali, because I, I like to align myself with a 2,600-year-old tradition, reaffirming my refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Dhamma, refuge in the Sangha. And then in the evening, in, in English, aligning the conventional self, the conventional sense of I, with that which we have faith is inherently and always secure. Now, talking about this, talking about the self in this way, sometimes people get a little confused because they're aware of the Buddha's teachings on selflessness or anatta. And, and of course, that's an important aspect of the teaching. However, trying to understand the Buddha's teachings on anatta on selflessness by thinking mm -hmm. by exercising our deluded sense of self we try to understand selflessness it's just like it's just like if you've got a, a wound on your forehead and and you've got some cream and you, you're rubbing it on the mirror you look in the mirror and the wound and you're rubbing the cream on the mirror and then you go back the next day and, and the wound hasn't cleared up so you get more cream you rub the cream on the mirror and you're desperately rubbing cream on the mirror to try and cure the wound on the forehead we're looking in the wrong direction. What's likely to be more helpful is to turn the light of attention inwards and investigate this sense of I, this sense of self, this that gets offended when somebody says something where we feel that was disrespectful. What does that feel like? And what is it that knows the feeling? If all there was was a feeling of offended, I mean, that would be a disaster. Then we'd be another unintelligent animal that can't do anything about it. However, we're not just unintelligent animals, we're very intelligent animals and we can reflect on feeling offended mm -hmm. yeah. or feeling angry. Mm -hmm. If you look at some situation and, and aversion arises, mm -hmm. some situation of injustice and unfairness, terrible things going on all the time, always have been, and there are now terrible things happening in the world. You look at it and aversion arises. If we're not careful, we cling to that aversion, it becomes hatred. 
The aversion is natural. Clinging to that aversion turns into toxic hatred. And then we become inflamed. That hurts us and then it makes a bigger problem in the world. If we investigate this relationship, if we investigate who and what we really experience ourselves to be, this sense of I, this this conventional sense of self, feel it, not just think it, not just think the Buddha said this and that about about self, really exercise the capacity for just knowing it feels like this. And little by little, maybe we experience a softening, a lightening of our grasp on our conventional sense of I, our conventional sense of self. And if that happens, I would expect that would be an increased source of concord and cooperation in the world. To end, I'd like to quote from the Dhammapada, this verse 348, which the Buddha said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and with a heart that is free, cross over to that shore which is beyond suffering. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Uh...